Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Delia Efron, a best-selling author and screenwriter whose films include You've Got Mail and The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Her latest book is the novel Syracusa, which is just out in paperback. Delia Efron is the writer of numerous other books as well, including the essay collection Sister, Mother, Husband, Dog, etc., which chronicled, among other things, her relationship with her sister Nora, who died in 2012. Delia is also known for her humor columns, which have appeared in the New York Times and elsewhere. Delia Efron, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted. Uh, well, so we uh, we live in bleak times, and you are someone who writes a lot of comedy. So can you start everyone off, everyone who's probably depressed, with a joke? Do you have anything to offer us? What, a joke? Yeah, like, you know. Seriously, no, I don't tell jokes. You don't tell ever. jokes? No, I don't tell jokes. In fact, I don't usually get jokes. I get panicked when people tell me jokes. Because I think I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. It just gets me completely anxious. So no, I am not starting out with a joke. Um, But I don't write jokes. I mean, I'm not, um, I admire it. I admire it, but I don't know how to do it. Okay. So so then tell me your process for writing a humor column. Oh, I guess it's just something strikes me either, something's either making me insane like the time I was on, you know, trying to get Verizon to fix my phone for like 48 hours straight. And I get so crazy that I just start to write a piece about it and it comes out funny. Um, It's usually getting triggered by something, but it can be triggered by something which is not particularly funny in itself. But then I just spin it that way. So have you ever, to use the Verizon example, have you ever started out writing a piece that you thought, oh, I'm going to write a serious op-ed or something about this, and then it turns into a humor piece? Well, I almost always try to make things funny as well as serious. I, I think that, you know, everybody has some notion of what their own talent is, at least after a certain amount of time, you should have some notion of it. And I think I can sort of go between being emotional and being funny, that I can swing back and forth in the same piece. So I almost always try, even if it's something really serious, to to find things that are funny in it or odd or offbeat or insane or, yeah, it's it's sort of, actually, it's it's not exactly a gift as much as a I mean, you're stuck with it in a way. I mean, from a young age, you've done that and you still do it and you can't stop it. Something that's driving you crazy also makes you laugh. So what are the types of things that drive you crazy right now? Or what what is driving you crazy right now? Well, what is driving me crazy right now? Uh, Well, um, my dog but I am not writing about it because I've already written about my dog and um, you can only write so much about a dog <laughs> without turning into some crazy dog person. But yeah, she's driving me crazy. Um, crazy she, dog people sell books though. Yeah, I mean, I, I always get really panicked. I always think when the conversation turns to dogs, it's time to go home. Well, um, I'm glad we're only in like the third minute of this podcast. You know, right now... Um, I don't know. I'm sort of loving New York right now. It's gorgeous weather. It's spring. It's beautiful. And I'm happy. Oh, all right. Well, all right. Maybe. I'm sorry. Does that upset you? Well, I'm upset about other things, but I, everyone I'm around seems seems. I'll uh, tell you what is and- not, I'm not finding funny, even though I, I obsessively watch all the sort of comedy stuff about it. I mean, Trump, I mean, not finding it funny. But I still, 
watch Colbert, I watch the, you know, the, um, the opening for Saturday Night Live, or I watch anything that I can that, you know, is funny about it. But then basically deep down, I, I never really think it's funny. Yeah, I have that too. You know, I was at a family event and my brother-in-law brought up how funny it was, just how ridiculous everything was. And I found myself getting fumingly angry that he was finding it funny, even though, of course, like that's a coping mechanism and he should find it funny uh, if that's if that's how he copes with it. But it's it's a thin line these days. Yeah, I mean, finding it funny is protecting yourself from what the reality of it is, which is that we're in a terrible place. Well, OK, let's let's go back a second. Um, you said from a very young age that you things annoyed you and then you tried to find what was both serious and funny within those things. So when when did you notice that about yourself? And then when did you start writing? Well, I know what happened to me is I was raised in this, my parents were writers, they were screenwriters. And the big time together was the dinner table. And we would all bring our stories. And every time I said something funny, my dad shouted, that's a great line, write it down. So I had a sense very early in life that I was the funny one. And that not only that, whatever I thought was funny was worth probably writing down, which, you know, is an, it's a whole nother thing. Uh, and so I learned from a young age sort of how to tell stories and, and a sense of, of that I had a destiny as a writer from my parents who were really only raising writers. They had four daughters and all four daughters turned out to be writers and that was no accident. Uh, yeah, well, it doesn't sound like a coincidence. Um, so, and then <laughs> when did your first, when when was your first published writing? Okay, well, what, what happened was, you know, my sister Nora, who was older than me, um, she knew she wanted to be a writer probably in the womb. So because my parents were screenwriters and my sister was a writer at such a young age, I I sort of ignored my destiny. And then... So I married the first man who asked me and moved to Providence, Rhode Island, and didn't really write at all. I, it just, you know, it wasn't something I could take on. It was too big a deal. My family situation was just like too big a mountain to climb. And then I got to be about 28 years old, and I thought, your life is going away. I mean, you know, everyone knows you can blow your 20s and still have a life. Um, secretly, you know it, even if you don't admit it. And I suddenly thought, you're, you're blowing your life. And I said to my husband, my first husband, that's an important part of this story. I said to him, I think I want to be a writer. And, you know, it's a very big deal to announce your dream. I mean, that, saying it out loud, that's a big thing. And he said, I don't want you to be a writer. And I said, why? And he said, Suppose you become famous. I don't want you to become famous. So I said, I promise I won't be famous. So anyway, obviously I had to leave him, right? Because if you were married to someone who wants to crush your dreams with his big fat foot, you just better get out of there. So I That's knew that if advice, I wanted yeah. to be a writer, I had to leave the marriage. And I had some money not a lot, enough to last two years. And I made a plan and I thought I'm going to New York and in two years, I'm either going to be a writer or I'm going to have to find something else to do. And I, I mean, I figured it out that I had to get published in the New York times because that was the place that could launch you. 
And about two years, I was like down to $300, which would have been 500, except I fell in love with an orange coat. Um, I'm sitting in my apartment and I'm eating chocolate pudding my way, which was, it's that kind of pudding you cook and there you have skin on top and you make a little hole in the skin and scoop the pudding out. There's a Seinfeld episode about that. Did you ever, anyway, have you ever heard of that? I heard about it through a Seinfeld episode, but no, otherwise, no. Oh, really? It's in a sign. Well, he must have stolen it from me. Anyway, so um, I, I'm eating chocolate pudding my way, and I suddenly thought, you're eating like a child. And I wrote a piece called How to Eat Like a Child, which was just deadpan instructions about how children eat food. You know how you peel the Malamar, peel the chocolate off the Malamar, eat the graham cracker bottom, and then leave the marshmallow between the cushions of the couch. Anyway, I wrote this piece, 500 words, and I sold it to the Times. And it was on the back page of the Sunday magazine. And the next morning, I was offered a book contract and from Viking. What year was this? Oh, God, 1977. So let me ask you, because a couple times in this conversation, you've said, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a writer. I think for some people that has a very specific meaning. It means I want to write novels. I want to write short stories. I mm. want to write essays. I want to write. You've kind of done all of those things. So yeah. was uh, screenplays as well. Was, was your, was your feeling that you always wanted to do all these kind of things or did you have kind of a more narrow focus on what it meant to be a writer at that point? No. I mean, one of the things that happened was that I wrote this, I started out thinking I'm going to do some journalism, but I knew I wasn't a journalist. I don't, I don't like interviewing people. I don't like making phone calls like that. So, but I knew that, I mean, I didn't consciously know very much, but when I wrote this particular piece, I looked at it and I thought, oh, this is who I am. I could see that I had a voice. I could see that it was funny. I knew that I understood children, which was the first thing I understood about myself as a writer. And what does that mean? Before you go on, what does that mean? You knew you understood children. I I, I had an empathy for them. That 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 piece completely evoked childhood. I mean, not everybody has has a kind of sense of what children are like or or childhood. It's not about, by the way, having children. I mean. People like um, P.L. Travers, who wrote Mary Poppins, didn't have children, and Sendak didn't have children. It's not about that. It's some empathy with kids and some sense of identity with them that I still had. And so I saw that in my work, and I, I could started to see who I was. But then I really, you know, I had really wasted my 20s, and I just thought, okay, every year you're going to learn to do something different. And I thought, you're going to have to learn to write an essay in the next year. And so the next year, I sort of taught myself to write an essay, and I ended up with a contract at New York Magazine then. Um, and I had a contract for like four pieces, and I could only manage to write two of them. I mean, I wasn't like I was doing really well or anything. It was just I, having blown a certain amount of time, I got really serious about it. And then my when my book came out how to eat like a child and other lessons in not being a grown up it was it was a bestseller and that meant i had was offered another book contract and so i wrote a follow up to it called teenage romance or how to die of embarrassment and then i thought you got to branch out you can't just keep doing this style and that's when i really got better at essays and then one day I'm trying to think what the order was. Oh, Nora, my sister Nora. Well, first of all, I'm I'm 
in my second very happy marriage, I married a screenwriter, and he started to teach me how to write screenplays. He started teaching me about drama and how you set up conflict and character and what a scene was, and he he really taught me a lot. And so, when was this that you got into screenwriting? Oh. Uh, I don't know. The first movie Nora and I did was This Is My Life. So that was the early 90s. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I had, it's like for a year before I'd been writing screenplays that hadn't gotten made. And Nora had written The Brilliant When Harry Met Sally and was offered the opportunity to to direct. And this particular project was about sisters. And she said to me, let's collaborate. And so that branched me out right away. I mean, we became collaborators. And so tell me about a, the collaborative process of writing, especially writing with your sister. What that uh, sort of how what was the division of labor and also what was your sort of what were your feelings about doing this with her? Well, it changed over the years. And I mean, in the beginning it was I think we just had the greatest time in the world. We had so much fun together. We we would outline together, and then we would take turns writing scenes, or I would write a scene and send it to her. She would write one and send it to me, or we'd get stuck on a scene and, and say to the other, oh, can you solve this? I can't. That's where we started with the outline, and then we would we would send the scenes back and forth, and we work, would work on it together, and we would spend a lot of time thinking about what we wanted to have for lunch, and sometimes we went shopping, and it was just like... Nora always said we shared half a brain. And really, I think if you collaborate with someone, you have to sort of, you don't have to share half a brain, but you you have to sort of laugh at the same things, like similar things. I, I personally feel you have to have the same attitude toward money because I just think that's a clue about whether you're going to get along with anyone. What's and your attitude to money? I, I just feel like if you really spend money easily and the other person is cheap. It's never going to work. That's just just my basic feeling. I have no I have no way to prove it except that I guarantee you that would be true for me. So, do you are you cheap or do you like to no? Spend? I'm not cheap. So, my question, my next question for you is one difference I would imagine between writing a screenplay and writing a novel or writing a humor piece is that your screenplay I imagine gets changed somewhat when during filming by the director or whoever, and then it gets interpreted via actors. So what was that process like of watching your screenplays become movies? And was it different on different movies? This, the, the whole process of screenwriting is, is collaborative. I mean, you can't go into it without realizing that things are going to change all the time. I mean, Nora was the director, so that made her officially the older sister on the project. If she didn't want something in it, it wasn't going to be in it. Um, then, But the exciting thing is, um, is that when the actors come in and they start to work on it, it starts to change because they bring all this stuff to it. They bring their own stuff. And you, the excitement is sort of changing it. I mean, a screenplay is not really anything except a blueprint for a movie. I mean, the film is the, if you write a book, what you write is the book. It's a literary document, how the lines flow, how it all goes together. So it's a whole novel writing is just, it's, it's an intense, completely different, very solitary experience. But screenwriting is this, is this party of voices that come together. And when they come together, well, it's fantastic. And they don't always, um, but so the, the actors bring on stuff and the, the editor brings in stuff. And sometimes if, if you have a set in which is very friendly, which Nora's sets always were, if somebody has a great idea, they'll just say it and doesn't matter who the person is. 
um, you use it. Uh, so there's a kind of, it's, it's when it's going well and it's fun and it just can't be, it's just incredible, but it's not something to get possessive about. If you get possessive, it doesn't work. Are there actors, you know, whether it's, you know, John Travolta or Tom Hanks or someone who, when reading lines that you've written, have been sort of shocked at what they could bring to it that wasn't on the page? There's always, when when the actor, like, my favorite thing is casting, and you can have a part that, that's just, is, you think it isn't working, it isn't working, and then some, an actor comes in, and suddenly the part just comes alive. Or, you know, with Tom Hanks, I mean, he brings an enormous amount himself and things will change. As I learned from him on Sleepless in Seattle that um, the star has to drive the scene and they have to have stuff to do. They have to have action in the scene. I didn't understand that. You know, if, you, if you're a screenwriter and you get to be on the set, which I always got to be, you learn a phenomenal amount about how to write for actors and how to write drama. What 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 is it specifically? Do you think? Well, you it's learn? just it it's an actor understands what they can do. A real a star, Travolta or or Tom Hanks or or Meg Ryan, they understand the character on some level that you may not understand it, and they may come in with some fantastic idea. Or uh, in a scene, sometimes they're too reactive. They're not. They ever look in a scene. Just basic drama. Every actor has an objective. Like right now, the objective in our conversation is you're interviewing me, you're trying to get stuff out of me, and I'm trying to please you. That's that's my objective, and maybe reach an audience, and and your objective is to get a good interview. So everybody has an objective, but sometimes you write a scene and, and a character uh, is is too reactive. And when an actor can come in, they, they come in with some idea of what they're doing in the scene, and it can make you realize, oh, my God, I should... I need to fix this scene, or this scene needs a joke, and it doesn't have one. It needs a joke right here. And um, you find that out in rehearsal. I mean, you have to be flexible and alive and open. And at the same time, you have to be really careful because, I mean, I always like it if the if the scene is shot the way it's written, and then you start to play with it because you're, it, you can get carried away and, and you can wreck a scene. There have been a lot of kind of think pieces over the past few years about the decline of romantic comedies. Um, what do you think the the state of romantic comedies in the film world is right now? Well, I think the state of romance in the world is sort of dismal, and that's affecting the state of romantic comedies. I thought you were happily married with your second husband. I, I am. I'm happily married with my third husband, actually. Um, and um, my, my husband, Jerry, died a year and a half ago, two years ago, and I I met um, Peter very recently. Anyway, I'm married to Peter, so uh, well, that's 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 wonderful, though. So, what? Why do you I, think the I state of romance? I believe in love, and love has blessed me in big time. But I think that all the the swiping and the the apps and the I don't think that's helping romance at all. And I think that the movies reflect that. But that's not just what's going on in the movies. I mean, if you look at the movies, there are these big tentpole movies. And they aren't, I mean, they don't make, they don't make more intimate movies anymore. They're either very indie or they're these, you know, gigantic action films. So 
that has a lot to do with the economy of the movie business. Which right. Is, Foreign grosses and stuff. But so you never tried the swiping apps, I'm assuming. Oh, me? Yeah. No, no. God knows, but I'm aware of it. Okay. All right. Um, and what is it about the, about them, do you think, that's, you know, draining romance? Well, I mean, a friend of mine said that, you know, she used to go to, to bars, you know, the neighborhood bar, and that everybody was friendly and you know, men sort of knew how to pick you up if they wanted to start a conversation and everything. She said, now everybody sort of sits there silently and swipes on their phone. And there's no there's no conviviality in the place. And um, I think that's a very tricky way to meet people because I think it's very visual-based in some way. It's not, it doesn't start with friendship or... I mean, I think all that's affecting... I mean, I just read articles about it. I'm sure you read them too. I, it it doesn't seem very romantic to me. It all seems it locates the bodies, but it doesn't really provide. Well, serendipitous meetings do seem less likely now because people are always on their phone, which is obviously a big thing of romantic comedies. That sort of thing, right? I mean, I love romantic comedies. I mean, the, once you're in love, the only place you ever fall in love again is at the movies. Um, how? How, you know, you said that you and you and your sister kind of shared a brain um, since she passed away, I guess, about five years ago. Uh, how is that? Has that changed you as a writer at all about what you wanted to write about or about the way you thought as a writer? No, it it did not, because the whole time that Nora and I collaborated, I began to write novels because I knew that I needed to express my stories my way, which um you know, my most recent novel, Syracuse, which is coming out this month in paperback, um, is just an expression of something that I have been personally obsessed with, which is the madness of marriage and 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 travel and how people can suddenly, everything can go south on a vacation. And th- these are ideas that I've had in my head. And I always knew if I didn't write my own stories, I would somehow get lost. And so from the very beginning, I... I I began to write novels and and told my personal stories. Just just a question about Syracuse. What is it about? Um, which, as you mentioned, what the book is about. What what is it about vacations that you think drive people crazy? Well, this is about two couples and a child on a vacation in Sicily, where all the lies and betrayals and secrets begin to be exposed, and the child is sucked into the adult drama and becomes a catalyst for catastrophe. And years ago. A, a psychiatrist said to me, what we think of as chemistry is really psychology, that two people falling in love acro- across a crowded room is just each spotting their own perfect neurotic match. And I just love that. It just stuck in my head. And I thought, I mean, it is impossible not to be married either happily or not, or observe other people's marriages and not understand that there is madness in marriage. And I've just been sort of carrying that one line around with me for years. And then I was in Syracuse in the old section in Ortesia, which was, which in, in, in 2000, in BC, the, the Romans knocked all the trees down in Ortesia and, and didn't plant anymore. They just built warships and uh, the place is a stone paradise. It's it's ancient footprints still rules. And the first day I was there, I thought, this is the most beautiful place I've ever been. And the second day, I thought, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to go mad. And 
I knew that it was a perfect place for people on vacation, married couples, to sort of lose their minds. Um, your uh, your sister was married to uh, Carl Bernstein um, uh, for a number of years. Uh, when did you know who Deep Throat was? I, I never knew who Deep Throat you was. You didn't? You didn't try to like corner him and get, get that out of him? No, I never even crossed my mind. Wow. Okay. Well, our brains work differently, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, I knew he wasn't going to tell me. Okay. Fair enough. No, it's, it uh, makes sense. Um, well, uh, Delia, thank you so much for talking. Uh, it's fascinating to hear about your career. You've made me feel much better about being single and not being married. Oh, good. I'm really glad to hear that. Thank you for that as well. And um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Take care. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Don't miss an episode of I Have to Ask. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And also, take a few moments to rate and review the show. And I'd also love to hear from you. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. <laughs>